2: Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polanski. The whole thing
0: is very, Tate, very mysterious, but this is what I know. And authorities say a menacing letter received yesterday by a Vallejo newspaper was not sent by the infamous Zodiac Killer. That's Gebhardt has details. That Area 51, the secret Air Force base in Nevada, actually exists.
2: In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. He's been called the East Side Rapist.
3: He's been called the Visalia Ransacker, the Original Night Stalker, and the Golden State Killer.
0: You have now entered into the House of Mystery. The best in true crime, conspiracy, and alternative
2: history. With Al Warren and Kevin Thompson.
0: KCAA, the stations that leave no listener behind. Broadcasting on 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM. The trifecta of talk radio for Southern California.
1: Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm your host today, Al Warren, and Kev Thompson is joining me, of course. Hey, everybody. Now, we are covering crime, and uh, we've got a special, actually, after, after having John Borowski, and we're talking about the staircase, we had to find out about the staircase, so we both watched it, and uh, here we go. We've got uh, one of the uh, main players, we'll call it, one of the main characters on it. We've got the lawyer. For Michael Peterson, and that's uh, David Rudolph. Thanks for being here, Dave. Thanks
2: for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Wow, that's quite a show. That's quite a series. Did you did you think this was going to take off like it is now?
2: Uh, you know, I had I had actually no idea what would happen when we did the when we did the filming. Uh, uh, the real goal uh, for me was simply to allow people to see. What a criminal defense lawyer actually does as opposed to, uh, what, uh, what the sort of stereotype is based on fictional movies and TV shows. Uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, however many people actually got to see it, uh, would be great, but, uh, you know, it's not as though I was, uh, had any financial interest or, or other interest. So, uh, for me it was really an educational experience, uh, and, and I'm, I'm very pleased that, that it's gotten as
1: popular as it has. Yeah, we were talking about that before, and I know Kevin was um, quite surprised uh, of how much work you actually did in this case, like even going to Germany.
3: Wow, yeah, you went above and beyond, and even with the test juries and everything, I mean, would you say that that was a, a normal defense process, or is this something that you did because of the importance of the case?
2: Well, obviously, each case is going to require a different level of preparation uh, depending on the issues involved and depending on the kind of resources you have. But here's what I will say. Most criminal defense lawyers approach their cases with the same attitude uh, that I approached the Peterson case with. Uh, Sometimes they don't have the resources to do everything that I was able to do. Uh, But in terms of the ethics of most criminal defense lawyers, how we approach the issues, what our goals are—I think it was very typical. Yeah,
1: yeah. Do you, now, um, in your opinion, now you, you believe in Michael Peterson right from the from the beginning, like he's innocent, no doubt, right?
2: Yeah. I, I I did, and it was based on uh, you know my perceptions of his reactions to what had happened, and uh, indeed, in some ways, even more importantly, the feedback I got from everyone who knew them uh, in Durham, uh, who hung out with them as as a couple, uh, who spent time with them. Uh, It was really a universal uh, response, which was they were an amazing couple together. Uh, and, And those who knew them uh had real trouble even imagining them having a serious argument, let alone being involved in a murder
1: yeah yeah and and for, for me um, i think i think the um the gay aspect is what tainted the whole feel of the trial and it it, it seemed to um, give disgust to a lot of people and it seemed to upset. And, um, annoy people. And, and, and in a lot of the prosecution, um, they, they talked about it as if it was something that was just awful, uh, unimaginable. It, it just, uh, they could never be a happy couple or soulmates or close with such a secret.
2: Well, and I think that just flies in the face of human reality, uh, you know uh, perhaps that was outside the the scope of uh Freda Black's uh experience uh although you know I have no idea what her experiences in life were uh but uh you know there's no doubt that uh the way they played the bisexuality uh and the way the prosecution played uh, the Germany uh, uh, incident uh, was designed solely to inflame and prejudice a jury and, and I think, frankly, to hide the weaknesses in the evidence uh, because, you know, when, when the prosecution can't just rely on the evidence, uh, then there's a real temptation for them to go into character assassination uh, and I think that's exactly what they did in this case.
1: And and this this that that whole thing of Germany the Liz Ratliff um, now that that shouldn't even been brought in. Well,
3: I, I, I'll disagree with that. Um, I think that that actually did more damage to the case than the bisexual lifestyle, in, in my opinion, because now you're establishing a, a pattern. David, I mean, am, am I wrong in that?
2: Well, you're wrong, no, you're right in the sense that it certainly had a tremendously negative impact. But when you talk about patterns, uh, in order to have a pattern, there needs to be evidence that somebody did something, uh, that constitutes a pattern. There was absolutely no evidence that Michael Peterson had anything to do with the death of Elizabeth Ratliff. The evidence was that he dropped her off at her apartment the night before. The evidence was that the next morning, uh, the nanny found Elizabeth Ratliff's body, uh, which was still warm, according to her testimony. There was no rigor mortis that had set in, and, and if she had been dead from the night before, her body would have been stiff at that point. The police who went to the scene saw no evidence of foul play. The German doctor who conducted an on-site physical examination and and took blood from her spinal column found Mm -hmm. that she had suffered a uh, you know a stroke. Uh, The Army CID uh, investigator who went to the scene and wrote a report and indeed testified at the trial for us. Said that there was no blood all over the staircase. That was a confabulation by these women who were brought over by the prosecution and housed together for a week, uh, where they could talk and share whatever recollections or tainted recollections they had. So, yeah, you know, the bottom line was that that this was this was simply an accident in Germany, not an accident, a natural death in Germany that got. Blown up, uh, and, uh, and, uh, linked, uh, to Kathleen Peterson, uh, in ways that were simply improper and, and unjustified. So I don't see it as a pattern, Kevin. Uh, you know, I see it as something that happened 18 years earlier. And, and really when you think about it, what is the theory that Michael Peterson was a staircase killer who found some some, uh, you know, unique way of killing women on a staircase uh, every 18 years, and in, the me- and in the meantime, he divorces his wife in a contentious divorce, and she's still alive and breathing? I mean, it just makes no sense.
3: Yeah, I could see though, where, like you said, you know, in, in in the show. Well, this is going to give him a label, you know, the the staircase killer, and, and you know, and I can see where that's at. But but to me, it made no sense because I can think of a hundred ways to kill a woman better than dragging her up the stairs and then throwing her back down.
1: <laughs> something you want to confess? There? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> something you want to something you've been thinking about there? Like uh, maybe we. I don't well. Know.
3: We'll
1: talk, we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, and I didn't see it as the point of because he there was nothing he was going to achieve from Elizabeth Ratliff's death, right? I mean, it's not like he had
2: absolutely. Chance. There was, yeah. No, indeed, indeed, he and and his first wife were the were the uh, trustees of the girls, and and indeed ended up raising those two girls for their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. There was never any motive. Uh, you know, it literally the link was that he dropped her off the night before. That was the evidence,
1: and it's just silly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And now, now, when we get to the to the to the motive of um, his wife, um, now things that have been brought to my attention that were not really really talked about in the uh, documentary. Um, what's about the the wealth or the insurance policy? So, did he receive money from his wife's death?
2: Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The insurance policy was to her first husband, Fred. Oh. He and her daughter, Caitlin, I think, got into litigation over over that because. They had divorced, and Kathleen had never changed the beneficiary. Uh, so, so there was, I think, a dispute between Caitlin and her father over who was to receive the proceeds. Uh, Michael had no, no dog in that particular fight. He had nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, So that's just a, a red herring uh that that various people have thrown up without knowing the facts or not caring about the facts uh with regard to their financial situation uh what we established during the uh during the trial and again you know some of this stuff didn't appear in the documentary uh and and from my perspective it should have but you know they had a lot of uh, a lot of video to uh to assemble is that uh during the time that they were allegedly under financial stress, uh, C- Kathleen was putting most of her salary into a deferred salary account uh, you know, so that she wouldn't be paying taxes and so that eventually when they retired, that money would come out at a much lower tax rate. So that's what in the face of their Of they're having some sort of financial stress. You don't defer your income if you're undergoing financial stress. Uh, And that, again, came out during our cross-examination of the state's uh, financial expert, but it just didn't make it into
3: the documentary. Well, he was making pretty good money off of his writing and everything. I mean, if you can afford to run for mayor in a campaign, I mean, you're really not
2: hurting for cash anyways. Well, I, I don't think it's not so much that he was making money uh, from his writing at that moment in time. He had certainly made a significant amount of money over the years, and he was in the process of optioning one of his books uh, to to be made into a movie, uh, and that was mm-hmm. going to generate a significant amount of money. So it's yes. not as though, to be fair, he wasn't you know, he wasn't earning current income from his books, but he had earned a lot of income in the, in the past. Uh, he, he had certainly put a lot of that into buying that house, uh, and uh, he literally was in the process, I think, that very weekend or the week before uh, of talking along with David Perlmutter, uh, who was a newspaper reporter in, in Charlotte, about optioning uh, the book. So uh, yeah. they just weren't, they weren't hurting for money.
3: Yeah, they, they got the news, if I remember right, the night before the the death.
2: Yes. And, and so, indeed, we had David Proma testify to the fact that he spoke with them about it. They were happy. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, the whole theory never made any sense. Here you have a couple who, by all accounts, gets along really well, you know, The only people who testified that there was ever any problem in the relationship was was Candace, who initially said they had a great relationship until she saw the autopsy photos. And I don't quite understand how that changes her view of the relationship, but apparently it did. Uh, So you have this couple that gets along incredibly well. They're watching a movie together. They're drinking wine. Uh a doctor who was a friend of their son's comes into the house at 10 o'clock that night and everything is, is perfectly normal and happy. And then what, an hour later or two hours later, he turns into a homicidal killer? How does that make sense? Well, you've only got his
3: word, though, on that, that everything was going great that evening.
2: No, 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 not true, because his son Todd showed up at the house at 10 o'clock that night with a doctor who was a friend of his. And the doctor testified at the trial. Again, this didn't make it into the documentary. But she testified that everything was perfectly fine. Moreover, you had a phone call between, uh, Kathleen and a coworker later that evening. And the coworker testified that everything was normal and fine. So there was never any evidence of there being any tension in that relationship or that situation that night. Uh, quite the contrary, the evidence was that there was none.
3: Well, see, that would have been important to put into the show because that's exculpatory, almost.
2: Oh, it's, it's completely exculpatory. Now you know it, it certainly was at the trial. You know, it, it was it was evidence at the trial, uh, but. You know, I had no control over, over what they decided to put in the documentary. Uh, and, uh, and look, you know, they put in as much as they could. They, they obviously made decisions uh, about, you know, what evidence was the most important and what evidence was not the most important. You know, that's something that I might disagree with, uh, but that wasn't my choice to make.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I still think that the, the, if they're making the motive out to be um, – money insurance and he didn't receive it and the gay thing which i i still don't understand because it's not like he wasn't having an affair with another person at that time he was just uh correct he was just internet talking but he had never met or actually didn't start any relationship right this this was just talk no
2: well, you know, it was more than talk, to be fair. I mean, he was supposed to meet with Brad mm-hmm. uh, on a date in, I think, early September of 2001, which, of course, is three months before any of this happened. They never met. And, indeed, Brad testified, and I think this is in the documentary itself, mm-hmm. that Michael, you know, talked about how much he loved his wife. Uh, you know, so, it, it, again, it, you know, to what extent would that be relevant, it, it's, it's really hard to, to understand that, to be honest. And indeed, if you saw the judge's comments in the last episode, right. I think the judge has had some second thoughts about why that ever came into evidence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like the uh, sexual thing and the um, German thing, he wasn't really thrilled that made it in, but it's a bit late now. Yeah. And, and you you even said
3: in a documentary, David, that, that the judge in the second part, when when we're, you know, when we're re, almost retrying the case, it, you said that, that the judge has written, you know, maybe some of this stuff should have never made it into the first case. But, Absolutely. you know, you, you can't put the demons back into the box.
2: Not at that point.
1: Now, now the son Todd that showed up that night that's another thing that if you see it floating around the internet there's a lot of talk about that about um, perhaps he was involved and what was he doing there he didn't live there and why was he who shows up to a house um, at night like that um, what's what's your comment on on Todd well
2: I mean First of all, my recollection is that Todd was in town visiting friends, uh, and that night uh, he was with a friend of his, a woman doctor whose name is just escaping me right now, but she testified at the trial, uh, and they went to a party. Uh, and so the two of them stopped by the house somewhere around 10 o'clock that night, uh and then uh, uh we are we're coming back i don't know if todd was staying at the house because he was in town uh, i i don't remember the details of that to be to be honest uh but um uh, th- there was never any any uh evidence that todd had anything to do with it indeed he was with this doctor at a party uh the entire evening uh so you know if 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 Todd is a suspect he had a he had a complete alibi
1: yeah yeah it's i just kind of thought it was more more talk you know um just like there's a lot of talk about the other son and and about his um uh, bombing of duke or or attempted bombing and uh, there's a lot of negativity about him on there as well when you when you're searching out the story and um sure I, I i really don't see the i don't see what what makes that important to the actual case?
2: Well, I mean, that's because it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your, your, your perception is not inaccurate. Yeah. Todd did what he, I mean, uh, Clayton did what he did when he was at Duke. Uh, you know, I don't know to what extent that got overblown uh, in the media. Uh, I wasn't involved in that case. But what on earth does that have to do with what happens in December of 2001? Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a mystery to me
1: i think i think yeah. it's just try they you know people try to um take down the um image of the family you know um now now the well, sure and and and
2: everybody every and everybody's family uh you know if you search deep enough uh has stuff that you know probably doesn't look all that all that terrific when you uh when you expose it to the public oh, Well, yeah. what family doesn't though <laughs>
1: No, that is, is true, exactly true. Um, now the blow poke um, again now showing up now. Is it true or not true that the cops actually found it before and put it back in the house?
2: That is absolutely true, according to Thomas Dew. Thomas Dew worked closely with the prosecution and with Dwayne Deaver throughout throughout their Trial. Uh, indeed, he is the person who actually built that miniature staircase that was, you know, the, the two scale staircase that was brought into the courtroom. Thomas Dew uh, uh, told us, uh, this is, you know, way half years and years yeah. after the trial, uh, that uh, he was present. Exactly. He was present in June of 2002. Uh, what happened then was that the police got a warrant to come back, allegedly to take measurements to create that staircase, that model staircase. So they came back in June of 2002, and they searched the entire house again, even though they were just supposed to be taking measurements. And according to Thomas Dew, uh, Deaver, along with the, uh, lead investigator, uh, in searching the house, found that particular item. They didn't know it was a blow poke. It was just a straight. Uh, they, thought it was a, they thought it was a curtain rod, uh, <laughs> yeah. and they photographed and they photographed it, uh, and they put it back where exactly we found it. According to Thomas Dew, this is not this is not something that our investigator is talking about. It's Thomas Dew. They put it back where we then found it a year later, covered in cobwebs and spiders and bugs. Uh, and we never saw that picture that was taken according to Thomas Dew. Indeed, you know, the blowpoke didn't become the murder weapon of choice until jury selection was underway. Prior to that time, there was no murder weapon, and it was in, I think, May of 2003 when Candace Zamperini goes to the police with her amazing revelation that she's now figured out what the murder weapon must be. It's this blowpoke that uh, is allegedly mysteriously missing, and that's the first time we ever heard about that. We were invited to the police station, uh, in Durham to inspect that new piece of evidence that they had just gotten, i.e. Candace Zamperini's blowpoke. Uh, now when that came to the attention of the police, when, when Candace, uh, put that theory out there, they knew, they had to know. You know, certainly the lead investigator in Deaver knew that they had seen that before. It wasn't missing, it was down in the basement. They yeah, have photographs. In the
3: garage.
2: That, right? Yes. Garage, I'm sorry, garage. Uh, and so why they would go with that theory, knowing that, and not disclose to us that it had been found you know, a year earlier and photographed, and we never got that photograph, uh, is, is another whole piece of the case that I think uh, raises real suspicions about, about what was going on from the prosecution perspective. Well,
3: it was just absolutely tragic that you guys discovered that there was possibly a photograph the, the day before Michael takes a plea deal. Right. Um, now, now, let me say this though: in, in the prosecution's defense, okay, we found the blow poke. Just you know, just just like it was
2: described.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Arrived, you know, in the documentary. But who's to say? Cause you know, you guys made a big issue. Well, there's no blood, there's no hair. Look, it's covered in dust and cobwebs. Here's some dead insects on it. And, and even the detective, when you brought it to court, he's like, uh, well, gee, wow, yes, could be. The, the jury's passing it around. It, if people suspect that it was similar to what could have created those lacerations on her head, who's to say this is the weapon or not something similar to it or maybe another blowpoke altogether? It seemed to me that discovering this oak and bringing it into court was kind of not really necessary because it really didn't eliminate that possibility.
2: Well, that's true. You know, obviously you're right about that. But we had just been listening for four months to the to the prosecution saying that it's the blow poke that they were given and it's missing and waving it around and showing it to Deborah Radish, you know, the medical examiner. And she looks at it and she's, oh, yes, this is consistent. This is what could have inflicted these wounds. So, you know, it was that context that made the discovery of the blow poke so important. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that we had made it important it's that the prosecution had made it important and they talked about it being quote mysteriously missing even though we showed photographs going back years i mean literally years of of that fireplace at christmas time and there was no blowpoke mm-hmm. so it's not us that made the that made that the critical issue in the case it was the prosecution and so when we then discovered the blowpoke and it's not missing, and it's not the murder weapon. You know, I, I, I'm not sure how how you could say that it's that it's not relevant to bring that into court and show it. And indeed, all of a sudden, in closing argument, what we're hearing is, "Oh, well, the blowpoke's really not important." You know, we don't, we never said it was it was the blowpoke. We 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 don't know what it was. Well, uh, that's not quite what they said in the statement. <laughs> I, I gotcha, but the, all. All
3: possibility, of that, at least in, in my opinion, and, and I, I work, you know, in in the criminal system, it, it, all possibility of that should have been crushed by Dr. Lee. Uh, I understand blood spatter, and I understood exactly what Dr. Lee was saying, um, your blood spatter analysis expert, that there was no cast-off, and a weapon like that would have created cast-off. I mean, Dr. Lee... No doubt. Uh, yeah. He really did a wonderful job for you guys, and I, I hope you tell him that we here on the House of Mystery said that. He did an awesome, awesome job.
2: <laughs> yeah, he'll want to hear he, that. He told the truth. He told the truth. You know? I mean, he. Did, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but he didn't do a job for us. He actually came in and testified about what a legitimate crime scene forensic person would be looking at, which is if you've got that kind of a weapon being used to inflict those kinds of wounds in that space, they're going to be cast off. And indeed, yeah. there wasn't. There weren't any, there weren't any nicks in, in the walls. There weren't any you know, indentations where, where something – I mean, the whole thing was, was absurd when you really think about it, when you look at that staircase.
3: Well, and there was no skull fractures, per se. There were just lacerations in the scalp that, to me, would have been consistent with somebody falling down the stairs. And I have seen plenty of people fall down stairs. You know, our inmates tend to throw themselves down the stairs just to get to go to the hospital to eat chicken nuggets. But, you know, and, and you've got the boom, 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 boom. But there's no skull fractures. If I'm sitting here knocking somebody over the head with a blow poke, be it hollow or be it not, there's going to be some fracturing, at least minor.
2: And, and some injury to the brain. I I mean, uh, there just wasn't any, I mean, she didn't die of blunt force trauma. She died of blood loss. She Mm -hmm. bled out. Yeah.
1: And and when we talk about um, blood, and we talk about uh, Dwayne Devers, now this this really really bothers me that someone like uh, Deaver can actually make up testimony, get caught in making up testimony, and not have to pay for it in any sort of legal fashion. How how, how does that how does that happen?
2: Well, it happens because it's the prosecutor who determines, uh, whether somebody's going to be charged with perjury. Uh, you know, Deaver wasn't the only person, uh, who, only expert, uh, secured by the prosecution who committed perjury under oath. They had an expert by the name of Sammy Shabani, uh, an alleged mechanical uh, engineer, uh, who testified or tried to, uh, and after he, uh, uh, provided his background, uh, we impeached him uh, to the point that the judge struck his testimony. Uh, and he walked out of court, and he never got prosecuted for for his perjured testimony. So, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's up to the local prosecutor as to whether or not somebody's going to get charged with something or not. Uh, certainly, if one of our experts had done that, I can guarantee you that they would have been charged with perjury. Uh, But, uh, you know, Dwayne was on their team.
1: But that brings me to one other point, then. One thing I noticed from the very beginning until the end the whole prosecution team, all of them, including Deaver, everybody that was involved in that, in the making and part of that film, was really, really angry. And really angry at uh, Michael Peterson. And I'd really I don't understand it. Where did all that anger come from? Why were they so hateful to him?
2: Well, it, you know, that's a, it's an inter- that's an interesting observation. Um, and I guess you really you see it uh, in some of those interviews that, that the film crew did with, with both Hardin, and then uh, a, a meeting uh, that the prosecutors had, and, and indeed one of the prosecutors talking there is Michael Nifon, who was uh, ended up being disbarred for his role in the uh, Duke Lacrosse case. Um, uh, and I, I hadn't really focused on that, to be honest, uh, until you just raised it in terms of their anger. Uh, but, it, but it's true. It does sort of come across that way. And, and I think if you ask Michael Peterson why, he would say is because he wrote very, very critically of the district attorney's office uh, in his newspaper column. At least that—that that was always his his uh, perspective on why he wasn't going to get a fair trial in the Durham justice system. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I guess that makes sense. Uh, but it, I well, I noticed it right from from step one. Every time <laughs> I showed anybody on that team uh, talking or doing investigating. They they were angry, like uh, foaming at the lips almost. I was just it was, it, well, I thought it was crazy. Yeah. It was, I didn't understand the anger right from the get go. Oh, uh, that's
3: that's their job. That's their game face. That's what prosecutors do. Yeah, Pro-
1: but they made that Nancy Grace look like a, a girl guide cookie scout girl. You know, I mean, <laughs> well the well the woman wanted
3: to be Nancy Grace so bad. <laughs>
1: Yeah, David stayed out of that one. Now, <laughs> uh, now the owl theory. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, so what, 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 what can you tell me about the owl theory and, and what your opinion of it is? Uh,
2: well, first thing I can tell you is that it never occurred to me back, <laughs> back in 2003. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people have asked, well, gee, you know, why didn't you raise this? Why didn't you get into it? And it's really simple. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't cross my mind. Um, now uh, and when I first heard it uh, and in the in the months after I first heard it and I first heard it literally a day and a half before I was scheduled to give my closing argument at the time when all the evidence in the case had already been closed um, and and you know I didn't have time to really think about it at that point and then it sort of got made into a joke by the prosecutors and the and the police and various other people talking about you know Oh yeah, let's go and conduct an howl lineup, and you know, let's uh, you know, hey. uh, go, you know, go, go, It, go it was woodsy. That woodsy, exactly. like, you got to watch him. Yeah, so so it got made into a joke, um, and and I think part of the reason it got made into a joke was because uh, Larry Pollard, who was the neighbor who raised it, uh, you know, went public with it before he really had his had his facts lined up and, and people to, to support it in a, in a scientific way, and so it got made into a joke. Uh, you know, as I got more involved into uh, the case after the conviction, uh, and I really started sort of investigating it on my own, talking to the various people who, who Larry had, had secured as, as experts, uh, and starting to go back and think about some of the evidence that I really didn't pay much attention to at the time. You know, I'll give you some examples. There were some blood uh, drops on the uh, uh, walkway leading up to the front door. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, I noted it, but I assumed that that was from Michael... Yeah, he, he had cradled Kathleen. He had blood on him. I assume that was from him walking outside looking for the EMTs. Uh, and he certainly didn't, he couldn't remember what he had done, you know, after the phone call. Uh, there was blood on the front door frame, on the outside of the front door frame. Again, I assumed that that was from Michael leaning up against the door Waiting for the EMTs to arrive. There awesome. were, um, yeah, there were there were um, pine needles found in dried blood around Kathleen's body or on her body. I can't remember which right now. And I assume that that must have come from the Christmas tree that they had set up. You know, shortly before that, there was a feather that was found in dried blood. That again, I, I remember thinking about it. I remember thinking to myself, that's bizarre. It must be from some down pillow or something. Yeah. You know, so at the time, when you're looking at all these little things, there was, and then there was a, a little, there was something that should have been in a container that was opened up in the courtroom that was missing. And it was described as sort of a metallic-like, hard thing but it was very vague description. Uh, you know, was it a talon? Uh, who knows, but it was missing. Uh, and so you start looking back at all those things, and and now, you know, uh, on social media, you see you know, literally hundreds of instances where owls have attacked human beings, barred owls in particular. Yeah. And we didn't have access to that back in 2001 or 2002. Uh, You know, YouTube was, uh, you know, a bunch of people posting pictures of their kids, uh, you know, uh, playing with their cat. Uh, So when you put all that together, you know, the question for me, guys, is not whether can I say the owl, you know, inflicted the initial wounds on Kathleen's scalp. I I don't know. The issue for me is: Does it raise? Is it a plausible theory for how those initial wounds on her scalp, and you can see them on the right side of the of the diagram of the autopsy, uh, which really look like uh, you know, a raptor's claws? Uh, and, and is it a plausible theory for how those initial wounds got inflicted? I think it's certainly plausible enough to 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 cause. A reasonable doubt about how those wounds got inflicted. It certainly seems more likely to have been inflicted by that than by a blow poke. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I, I look back now and I say, yeah, that's that's certainly something that's possible. Uh, and and uh, you know, unfortunately, it just never occurred to me back in the day.
3: Well, well, let, let's look at it a little bit closer, David. Um, and, and I know we're up against the clock for you, but this is just so stimulating. If if we're going to go with the theory that this was an accidental death and she fell down the stairs and it could have been possibly caused by an owl, the owl would have been had to have been at the top
2: of the stairs
3: to cause the attack yeah, and let, the
2: fall. Let, let, let me stop you, because here's the theory, and, and there's a... If you look at at the Netflix uh, uh, site for the Staircase, they have a little three minute movie on this. And indeed, I I get into it. Uh, you know, I have a little blog on my personal website uh, where I talk about it. The theory is this, and so let me be clear to all your listeners: the theory is that Kathleen, after leaving the leaving the um, pool area, walked through the house and decided to go back out in the front because there were some Christmas decorations in the form of little reindeer that they were putting out front. Uh, and those reindeer had not been there the day before, but Michael says they were, you know, now they're there the next morning when all this comes comes to light. So the theory is she goes out there to either put those out or place them or whatever and gets attacked by an owl Outside in the front of the house, Michael is on the other side of the house by the by the pool with that fountain going. Um So the owl, the theory goes, would attack there. Then you know, cause her scalp. She starts bleeding. Then there are the drops of blood on the outside, leading to the front door. Uh, then there's the bloody the bloody uh, handprint on the front of the door as she goes in. She gets inside the house. She's losing blood. She's disoriented. She's on, uh, diazepam, uh, and, and she's been drinking. Uh, she loses consciousness right there at the staircase. Uh, she's unconscious for a period of time. And this is where the owl theory and what we said at trial sort of comes together. Uh, because her feet are completely bloody. The bottoms of her feet are completely bloody from the toes to the heels uh, in one solid blood stain. Uh, so obviously, she had to have been unconscious for some period of time. The blood had to have pooled for some period of time. And she then had to have stepped in the blood uh, in order to get that kind of a, a blood stain on the bottoms of her feet. And And even the prosecution agreed that she was unconscious for some period of time and their argument was that then she comes to, stands up and Michael then beats her more uh, and that's when the premeditation forms. Um, Our theory was that she came to, slipped again in that blood which as we all know is incredibly slippery, uh, hits her head, hits her elbow just as we showed in the animation uh, and Goes down again, loses consciousness, and bleeds out. So that's the theory. It's not that the owl was in the house or stalking her in the house or all the jokes that, you know, ended up being made. Mm-hmm. It's that the owl was outside, inflicted the initial wounds, uh, they started bleeding, she comes inside, she loses consciousness, she then does, in fact, fall, not all the way down the stairs, but on the bottom two or three steps and hits her head, hits her, her elbow, uh, sustains some other injury, other bruises, uh, and and bleeds out. So that's the theory.
3: you know, And that's absolutely plausible because most
2: of the blood was at the base
3: or, or near the bottom of the stairs. Yes.
0: And again, yes. Dr. Lee
3: didn't find any blood anywhere near the top of the stairs. Wow. Hmm.
1: Now, the Eldorf plea, um, is it, work, did, did it did it work best for Michael to do that?
2: You know, uh, all offer pleas are, are, are an important avenue uh, for people who are in Michael's situation who are absolutely adamant that they're innocent. But for whatever reason, in Michael's case I think it was a combination of uh, uh age, uh of uh, uh you know not having to go through the trauma of this sort of trial again, or put his family through the trauma of that trial again, uh, uh of uh, uh not having the financial resources uh to do, in terms of experts and various other things, everything that he might want to do at a trial. So for Michael, you know, the question boiled down to this. What is the advantage to me of going to trial at this point in my life? I'm 72 years old. I have grandchildren. I spent eight years of my life in prison. I spent another five years of my life on house arrest. What's the point of doing that? What's the ultimate outcome? If a jury finds me not guilty, that doesn't mean that they've decided I'm, quote, innocent. It means that the state hasn't proven its case. And at that point, you know, my life's going to go on just the way it's going on right now. Uh, and what's the difference between that and taking the offer plea? Uh, and being sentenced to time served, which you've already done, and going on with your life? And, and the answer really was, there's no difference. There's no practical difference. Now, if Michael was 40 or 50, uh, and he had another 30 years, and, and a conviction would impact him in significant ways, it would have been a different calculus. But at this stage of his life, it made absolutely no sense to go forward. And and that was that was the basis of the decision.
1: Has this whole trial now? I I just wonder if it's changed how you feel about the the justice system now.
2: Well, um, I don't know if it's changed how I feel about the justice system. Uh, You know, I I I've been a criminal defense lawyer for a long time. And I knew about the problems of junk science and I knew about tunnel vision and I knew about a lot of the things that, that the staircase illustrates. Um, but it certainly had a significant impact on me uh emotionally and psychologically, um, in the sense that as I as I say during the documentary, it really caused me to question uh Myself and my abilities, and and my faith in jurors, which generally speaking, I had pretty pretty strong faith in juries, and it shook my faith in juries. Uh, I will say that. Uh, and and since then, I've really uh, sort of focused my practice uh, much more on wrongful convictions uh, and representing people. Who have been wrongfully convicted as a result of police misconduct, uh, and I've done a number of those cases over the past decade. Uh, and so, to that extent, it, it certainly has affected my my own career.
1: And and Michael Peterson, how is he now? Like, how how is he coping with life now after all you, of this?
2: You know, I, I think that Michael. Uh, has has basically decided to just look forward and not not uh not brood over the past uh he's living in a you know in a modest apartment uh he he lives on his military pension and his social security uh he writes because that's what he does uh he visits with his grandchildren and his and his uh, uh kids uh, and I think he's just trying to to enjoy whatever time he has left, and and so uh, for someone who's gone through what he's gone through, I think he's doing about as well as anyone could expect.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, we well, we certainly wish him the best. Um, and and for yourself, um, you're continuing to practice law. I am
2: still practicing law, as I said. I, I uh, although I have tried a number of criminal cases over the past decade. Uh, my primary focus right now is really on wrongful conviction cases and, uh, and representing people who have spent sometimes decades in prison for crimes that they demonstrably didn't do and oftentimes as a result of police misconduct, uh, similar to Dwayne Devers. Uh, and so uh, that's really where I put my focus in trying to get those people compensation so that they could uh, put their lives back together.
3: Well, after seeing the effort that you put into a defense, though, I'm writing a check for your retainer right now.
1: <laughs> check Wow, well, there you go. There's there's a there's an endorsement. <laughs> wow. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, and it's certainly uh, um, interesting. And, and the whole staircase and Michael Peterson case, and and we appreciate uh, all the work you did and and coming on the show. Um, now, uh, do you have contact information or anything that you want to give out to the public? Well, sure.
2: I mean, people people can certainly follow me on Twitter, uh, which is David S., uh, at David S. Rudolph uh, on Twitter. Uh, and I've got a, a personal web page, uh, uh, www.davidsrudolph.com. Where, you know, I try to explain, uh, from my own perspective how I ended up doing what I have done for so long, why that's important to me, uh, you know, the cases that, that have been most significant to me personally, uh, and why, uh, and also, uh, on that site, uh, I've commented, I've sort of given an inside view from my perspective on each episode of The Staircase. Uh, what was going on behind the scenes, uh, and uh, and as well on the owl theory. So uh, if anyone's interested in following that, uh, I encourage them to look at it and uh, certainly follow me on Twitter because I'm not just commenting on the staircase. I'm commenting on criminal justice issues
1: generally. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for being on the show, and uh, maybe we'll do it again.
2: All right. Well, thanks for having me.
0: I appreciate it